The Trudeau government unveils new bail reform legislation as violent crimes spike in major cities across the country. Meanwhile, conservative leader Pierre Polyev has a bizarre exchange with a legacy media journalist over why bail reform is needed. Some cancer patients in British Columbia will soon have the option to receive radiation therapy in the United States. The Canadian Taxpayers Federation is giving the Alberta NDP's plan to hike taxes a failing grade. Hello Canada, it's Wednesday, May 17th, and this is the True North Daily Brief. I'm Rachel Emanuel. And I'm Cosman Georgia. We've got you covered with all the news you need to know. Let's discuss the top stories of the day and the True North exclusives you won't hear anywhere else. As major cities across Canada deal with an unprecedented wave of violent crimes, the Trudeau government introduced new bail reform legislation, which includes measures intended to make it more difficult for repeat violent offenders to get released on bail. Justice Minister David Lametti introduced the bill on Tuesday, saying the bill addresses the concerns of premiers, police associations, and victims' rights groups. The legislation introduces reverse onus bail conditions for people charged with serious violent offenses involving a weapon in cases where the person was convicted of a similar violent offense within the past five years. The new bail reform legislation would also add some firearm offenses to existing reverse onus provisions and expand the provision of that measure in cases where the alleged crime involved intimate partner violence. Conservative leader Pierre Polyev reacted to the announcement on Tuesday and said that he would go even a step further if he was prime minister and waive offenders' rights to a bail hearing in the first place. Further, he said he would bring in laws that would require repeat violent offenders who are arrested for the first time for violent crimes to remain behind bars throughout their trial. While being questioned by the media, Polyev got into a bizarre exchange with CTV's Ian Wood about why bail reform legislation is needed in the first place. This clip has garnered hundreds of thousands of views on social media. It's definitely worth a listen. The failure of the, the system to not support people who have committed crimes, gone to jail, serve their, their sentence, you know, and then they're committing another crime. So is this not a failure of things like social services and support for people who have committed crimes? Are, if you, ser- committing are you serious? Another- I'm asking you no, a question. I mean, are you serious? Come on. You're telling me. No, excuse me. Let, let me answer your question. Are you honestly saying that it's society's fault if a repeat violent offender commits 60 or 70 offenses? I think that criminal is to blame for his own actions. He is personally responsible. We're not talking about some kid who made one mistake when he was 19. We're talking about people who do 60, 70 violent offenses. Why do those and then they're because they're criminals. But why are they criminals? Because they do crime. And why do they do crime? Because we let them out early on bail. So because they got I think we've let solved out, the riddle here. Because they got let out early on bail. That's right. They then commit the crime. That's right. So that's what the, that's what all the experts agree is the cause of the crime. So have they stayed in jail the whole time on on bail in in jail, not on bail, as you say? They would then not commit crimes because they'd be in jail, so well, they couldn't they, commit and crimes. And when they get out at the end of their sentence, they're crime free. Well, they, we, we can't guarantee that, but what we can guarantee is the period when they're behind bars, they will not be able to do crime. Cosman, we know that all the provinces have been asking the federal government 
to implement bail reform for such a long time, the violence in our cities has really reached a breaking point. Do you think that these new measures go far enough? Yeah, I think that's the fundamental question. Will these uh, policies actually address the problems at hand that has to do with repeat offenders and this uh, revolving door justice system? Um, I think we know that the liberals have just like dragged their heels on this for so long and now they're they're forced into action and this is like the best they could do, I guess. But uh, I think it should go further. I, I, do, I think it, there's a lot of cases uh, where violent criminals uh, who have a history of, of committing horrific acts, uh, especially random violence, should not be granted bail. They should be in jail while they await trial. Uh, and I think uh, other people in Canada would agree with me. Now, this particular policy announcement has uh gotten the liberals some praise particularly here in British Columbia so I think it's yet to be seen uh, what sort of bump in the polls or, or, or what sort of popularity this might give them in the case of an upcoming election. Yeah, I guess that's really the question here. In the case of the reverse onus bail conditions for people charged with a serious violent offense involving a weapon, that applies to cases where that same person was convicted of a similar violent offense within the past five years. So we're still waiting for people to commit at least two violent crimes to crack down a little harder on them with bail reform. It is interesting to me, you know, in, that, in those cases, that, that could be two lives that have been lost by a criminal. And we're giving them a second chance to get out on the streets and potentially harm more people. So I don't really think these measures go far enough. Apparently, I'm alone in that one compared with my legacy immediate colleague here. This exchange is one of the most bizarre things I've, have, I've ever heard. Now, I remember from my days working on the Hill that if you ever went to a press conference where Pierre Polyev was speaking and you were unprepared, he would make you look and feel very, very stupid because he knows his issues very well, and he's very good at pointing out the flaws and questions. But this exchange, to me, is just next level. I, I don't even really understand the reporter's logic. He doesn't seem to understand that you can't commit crime if you're behind bars. It's just a pretty brutal exchange. I messaged one of my colleagues, still in the mainstream media on the Hill, and I asked him, what happened here? And he was like, I have no idea. But after this exchange took place, he allegedly said this reporter turned around and said to him, am I going to be on a Twitter thread? So I think the reporter immediately knew that he had screwed up. I don't know if it was just a situation where he didn't get his arguments out very well, or maybe he just genuinely doesn't understand how bail works, but pretty brutal. I'm glad it wasn't me. Yeah, it seems like a situation where instead of asking, you know, a pointed question, this reporter just got into waxing about his own views and making this lengthy statement without actually being informed uh, by the facts and the arguments. And I mean, this individual is, I'm pretty sure, a producer uh, for the parliamentary uh, beat for CTV. So you would expect that uh, such a journalist would be informed on these issues, but I guess not. It really is just like the media giving Poiliev another uh, home run. Uh, it's quite incredible to see.
Some cancer patients in British Columbia will soon have the option to receive radiation therapy in Bellingham, Washington, as part of a temporary initiative to reduce wait times and increase capacity in the province's cancer care system. BC's Minister of Health Adrian Dix announced on Monday that beginning on May 29th, eligible breast cancer and prostate cancer patients will be able to travel to one of two clinics in Bellingham located a short drive south of the border for their treatments. According to Dix, the government will cover any additional cost of travel or accommodations for the duration of the treatment. Dix said the province is making the move because BC hasn't been meeting its target for ensuring cancer patients receive radiation therapy in a timely manner. Recent data shows that over 3 million Canadians are currently on a healthcare waiting list as provinces scramble to patch up capacity issues. Now, I've talked to some experts about this and They've generally lauded the, uh, this move by British Columbia to, you know, uh, export some of our treatment to the United States, at least temporarily. Uh, do you think, Rachel, that this will cause other provinces to follow suit? That's a really good question. I think it maybe kind of depends how this is perceived in BC, if people are generally accepting it, if they think it's a good idea. As you mentioned, experts are lauding this program as saying it's a good idea. Of course, if cancer patients are not getting the radiation treatment they need in a timely manner, you as a government need to look at that and figure out, we need to get this fixed right away. What can we do? But I'm just thinking about over here in Alberta, where the government has funded some charter surgery centers to reduce the backlog of surgeries that is stemming from before the COVID-19 pandemic. But obviously that wait list was so exacerbated during two years when they just told people to stay home. People weren't getting the surgeries they needed. And that's been seen as so controversial in this province with the Alberta NDP accusing the UCP of following American style privatized healthcare. So now over in BC, you have a situation where they're actually sending patients to America for healthcare, to get healthcare in a timely manner. The irony of that is just insane to me when we have constantly liberals in this province saying Canadian healthcare is the best thing, our public healthcare system is the best thing, and we would never want to have a system like America. Well, now we're actually relying on America to help us get through this wait list that we've created due to the disaster that is Canadian public healthcare right now. So I can only imagine if they were to introduce something like this in Alberta, the outrage that would emerge from the opposition here. Totally. Uh, I think on one hand, it's an admission that something is fundamentally broken and what we're doing right now isn't working. Uh, but on the other hand, like exporting your like part of your healthcare to the United States, covering the costs with with taxpayer funding, uh, it's actually a loophole uh, in my eyes to avoid the privatization uh, accusations, right? Because, well, okay, they can say we're not actually touching British Columbia's healthcare system and opening it up to, you know, a for-profit private industry. We're just using a, a, a neighboring private's uh, private healthcare system, right? So I, I, I kind of scanned uh, some of the social media comments, and it seems to be that most people are just kind of in a sort of grim acceptance of the situation. Like things have gotten so bad from a healthcare perspective that they, they've sort of given up. And, and this is, I think, uh, a re very reasonable solution from my perspective. I would certainly agree with you. And like I mentioned, if this is 
cancer patients that are waiting for the radiation treatment, you don't really have time on your side. You don't really have time to play around with. You need to get them access to the services they need right away. One interesting thing I would point out about the policy over in BC is that now we're actually seeing taxpayer money leave the province as opposed to a situation where if they did have private centers that they could fund, at least those funds would be staying within the province and benefiting the BC economy. So I don't think they have anything set up where they could fund private centers for radiation treatment for cancer patients that are on a wait list. But if they were to set something up, think about all the dollars that would stay in the economy and trickle down throughout all sorts of revenue streams. Yeah, I think that's definitely a good point. One thing I would just add from from my understanding, uh, systems like this do happen uh, in other parts of the world. I know in the European Union, there are countries that have arrangements where you can, you know, get your health care needs done in a neighboring nation um, if, if you know, there's problems in your own country and the state would will cover uh, the cost for you. So, you know, maybe it's just a matter of just us catching up with the rest of the world. The Canadian Taxpayers Federation is giving the Alberta NDP's plan to hike taxes a failing grade, with Alberta Director Chris Sims calling it a, quote, reckless thing to do in a province that's booming and hiring thousands of people. The NDP released a costed economic platform on Tuesday, which forecast a $3.3 billion surplus over three years, including an increase to the corporate tax rate from 8% to 11% to increase revenue. The CTF says revenue collected by the government from the business tax is actually increasing under the lower tax rate introduced by the United Conservatives. Sims said, quote, People are flocking here in record numbers to work hard and pay lower taxes. This huge NDP tax hike would be a scarecrow for entrepreneurs. The NDP also pledged to drop the small business tax rate to zero, matching the rate in Saskatchewan. Sims said that's the right move, but said the NDP are poking a, quote, huge hole in the economy by hiking the general business tax. Cosman, I think a lot of people were surprised to see the NDP introduce this during the election because they've so far been running a pretty moderate campaign Both Danielle Smith and Rachel Notley have the job to appeal to moderates in swing ridings in Edmonton and Calgary right now. And so we've seen them announce tax cuts, announce changes for health care. They're making pretty safe announcements right now and policies that would appeal to a large group of people. So I think when people saw this, they're like, oh, this is more, you know, the NDP that we're familiar with. Do you think this is going to hurt the party or do you think this is the type of policy that really appeals to their base, excites their base and maybe even attracts some moderates? I don't think it will attract moderates per se, right? Like the NDP loves to talk about wealth taxes and whatnot. And to be quite frank, a 3% tax hike is is pretty large. Um so I think it's a play to their base in a sense, and it's just a way for them to pay for some of the programs that uh, Rachel Notley hopes to implement. Uh, whether it's it's reasonable or not, uh, I would say no, especially at a time when uh, most of the country is, is struggling with inflation. You know, businesses are struggling. Uh, we've seen mass layoffs all over the place. Uh, is is it really the time to hike taxes, especially when Alberta seems to be uh, breaking out of its uh, former troubles? I don't think so. 
That's it for today. And don't forget to check in at www.tnc.news throughout the day for all the news you need to know. And if you're able, please consider supporting independent media at donate.tnc.news. Thanks for listening and have a great day.